0: Welcome to Under the Skin where I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time of the history that we are told I could ask what I like though couldn't I care i mean, in bits where I ask all sorts of stuff this show is sponsored by me and my rebirth tour the next couple of shows are sold out but there are some tickets available for Skegness 15th of June Northampton 6th of July Grimsby 10th of July Regent's Park London 30th of July open air gig Regent's Park 30th of July oh you've got to see me open air that's when I come into my own I live out there Russell Brown. If you want tickets and here is an advert calling the rebels of the world. Join us for the rebel hearts with Kirsty Reeves podcast, which features fun conversations with paradigm shifters, dreamers and doers to make you feel empowered and inspired. Head on over to Apple podcasts to let them know what you think of the show. 10 of their lucky listeners who leave reviews will win a swag bag. That's the rebel hearts with the Christy Reeves podcast. Now it's time for under the skin. My guest today is Yanis Varoufakis. Have I said that correctly? Yes, you have, Russ. I know, we'd have been practising in the car. (laughs) He is an (laughs) economist, academic and politician who served as the Greek Minister of Finance from January to July 2015. His book, Adults in the Room, is a Sunday Times number one bestseller and tells the startling story of his encounter with Europe's deep establishment. It was called One of the Greatest Political Memoirs Ever by The Guardian.
1: Yeah, well, that's not necessarily a good thing. When the Guardian piles up all this kind of, uh, you know, compliments on you, you know that there's something that matters.
0: Really? <laughs> Be careful where you accept flattery from. Yannis, this is how, how, like, I encountered you as a person that sort of um, only sp- sporadically engages with the news. Uh, when Syriza won an election in Greece, I thought, this is mad what's going on here it seems like some genuine political shift people that are overtly and explicitly talking about representing the will of the people talking about making talking about finance in a different way talking about reneging on debts and the conditions that uh, meant that greece was in the debt that it was genuine political change now subsequent to that of course we all know what happened is that somehow that didn't happen did it like you know and so what i feel like i've got the opportunity to do here Hmm. is to talk to someone who's been face to face with the establishment that's dealt with the international monetary fund the world bank has seen it all and is still alive and is still talking because me this podcast is about is it possible to change the world what happens when you try especially what happens when you get close Tell us what the hell went on and why a new kind of democracy didn't emerge in the crucible of democracy.
1: It is absolutely possible to change the world. The world is changing. The question is who is changing it hmm. and on, for, for, uh, whose interests are being served by change? What happened in Greece? It was, look, allow me to put it in two words. It was a prison break. It was an attempt by a whole population of a country that had been confined to uh, effectively what was a Dickensian death prison. Uh, Greece had become a Dickensian prison camp by 2010, 2011.
0: The individual and the w- population as well as the nation as a whole.
1: Like, so individuals are in debt and the whole country. Everyone is in debt. Everybody owes to anyone, everyone, and no one can pay. We have um, a universal bankruptcy. We have a bankrupt state, bankrupt banks, bankrupt families, individuals, and companies. Uh, th- you know, th- th- the reasons we can get into them. But what was interesting, and just to reply to your original question... It began in 2011, a year after this uh, wholesale bankruptcy, that, uh, of course, the powers that be, the International Monetary Fund, the, the European Central Bank, the deep establishment, as I refer to them in the book, tried to cover it up. And how do you cover up a bankruptcy? By providing new bailout loans, and you do it with strings attached that effectively put the population in prison, in a, 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 an iron cage of austerity and um, Constantly shrinking circumstances and prospects. In 2011, uh, something magnificent happened in the center of Athens. We had... Uh, it began when 100, 200 people gathered in the central square opposite Parliament, the Parliament Square, also, which is called Syntagma Square, Constitutional Square. Uh, and within three nights, four nights, that occupation of the square grew from 300 souls to something like 100,000 people. And that lasted... Three um, weeks initially, four weeks, and then it went on to three months. Uh, In the end, it was put down by the police. We had the the most extensive use of CS gas in the history of the world. Uh, Were you there then? Yes, yes, of
0: course. Were you in the first hundred?
1: I was there. I was there from the beginning with my wife. Um, It it was an opportunity just to breathe in the oxygen of hope. Just by just walking to the and square then the every night,
0: CS gas of hope.
1: <laughs> oh, we well, end up. But look, it, the, remember the scene in uh, when it, w- w- which movie was it? Apocalypse Now? It, it, it came from the opposite side, uh, Robert divarli saying he's a crazed uh, um, officer of the U.S. Army, and he smells the napalm, and he says, "Oh." I love the smell of Naples. It's the smell of freedom. Well, for us, it was the smell of CS gas, which was the smell of freedom. Oh, because You
0: saw it, it as, oh, right, we're clearly doing something, right? Because there's CS gassing a domestic population. It was, it was actually
1: amazing nights, uh, Russell. I remember um, the blockade of Parliament Tens of thousands of people blockading Parliament, preventing parliamentarians from walking in to vote in more austerity bills. That the parliamentarians who were voting for those bills did actually disagreed with, disagreed with them, but they had a gun to their heads by their own political parties and by the the, the, the lenders of the Greek state, uh, and they were you know on the one hand they were telling me and and indeed to the media that they disagreed with those laws, but they were passing them and this, nevertheless. So imagine this brilliant moment when. Um, um, which I witnessed. It. I was there. There were all these people trying to, to climb up the wall, the, the, the defensive wall of the of the Parliament House, and to prevent the parliamentarians. The parliamentarians were getting in, sweating, looking very unhappy, having to go to you know to effectively run the gauntlet and to go into the Parliament House to vote for something they didn't agree on. And there was this young, slim, slender woman. Um, who was being squashed by thousands of people. And nevertheless, nevertheless, she was there screaming at a member of parliament, don't do it. Just say no. Just vote no. And he got really pissed off with her and said, who are you to tell me what to do? And she remarked, she remarked, she replied with a question, who do I have to be? And I, 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 nothing has moved me so much as that. Well, that was two thousand eleven. Uh, even though the the protests were squashed and quashed, and, uh, and the 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 crowds uh, were scattered through police action, they never went away. We all feared that it would go away, but it didn't. What happened was they they scattered throughout the population, and a movement began, which by January two thousand and fifteen led to a very small radical left party, a party of 4% in previous elections, uh, scoring 40%. And that's how we got elected and I became Minister of Finance. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a prison break, really.
0: It was a prison break. The reason break, why you don't listen,
1: you don't hear anything about it now was because the prison rebellion was uh, uh, effectively crushed.
0: This is what And it's not
1: happens. newsworthy. You know, the, the prison camp is worse than ever, but there is no rebellion, so the television vans are not there.
0: Wow, it's interesting how uh, narratives can be reasserted and how certain stories are appealing and certain stories just peter out. Now, I would be remiss were I not to mention that you and I have a disadvantage that the people listening to this podcast do not have. There is today a general election. I voted on my way here. It's what made me seven minutes late, Yanis. I've never voted before in my life. The reason I've never voted is because I always saw... um, Politics, uh, the type of politics, you know, Westminster politics, uh, or politics as I read about it, is a kind of an abstract thing that's impact on people like me or the kind of person I was when I grew up as kind of minimal. And by the time I'd become independently wealthy, I felt it was irrelevant for another reason. I bypassed its relevance, and its relevance seemingly bypassed me. But people listening now will either have just voted in a Conservative government, or there'll possibly be some kind of coalition. And if I listen to this back, and perhaps I will be, because already there's been great content from you, are we thinking, wow, now we know, now we know. So possibly over the course of this podcast, Giannis, we can talk through both outcomes. Because when you talk about a prison break and when you talk about the spirit of that woman and how sometimes people in crowds seem to speak for a collective mind as if there is a common consciousness that asks the pers- perfect question, who do I have to be? Who do we have to be to have control, to have power over our elected representatives? Is this a moment one wonders, and, but we won't be wondering by the time we listen, where, pe- where, where the people of Britain have a comparable prison break, where they vote for a, a Labour Party who has a leader that Explicitly saying we will renationalize uh, certain institutions, we will tax marginally more the wealthy, where we will collect tax from corporations. It's, you know, it is, of course, not as radical as what you have just described, but it is at least an opportunity for people to vote for a different type of politics. Why is it so difficult for that to happen? Why do people vote against their interests?
1: Well, we were discussing this on the phone yesterday, weren't we? it's alienation. The worst enemy of democracy, the worst enemy of each one of us, is uh, the, the, al- the ultimate form of slavery. You, you could be thrown in chains, in a tiny prison cell, uh, but as long as you have your wits with you, as long as you have your faculties, as long as you have your sense of independence and freedom, they cannot really imprison you, however deep they push you into the dungeon. But if, they, they, if you lose your sense of uh, what is right and what is wrong, if they uh, indoctrinate you so that their interests become your desires, that is the worst form of slavery. The worst form of slavery is one that is volunteered into. Uh, and, 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 and let's face it, the, for, for decades, when you, know, you were growing up, when I was growing up, the democratic process was a fig leaf. For oligarchy. And elections were an excuse for maintaining the oligarchy. Um,
0: the democratic process is a fig leaf for oligarchy. Yes, it, 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 you said that before. Well, we're going to write it down and put it <laughs> on a slogan. Well, think the about democratic it. process is a fig think leaf
1: Think about leaf it. For Democracy for is a fantastic system and it's a, a, a resonating word and a resonating concept. When, under its guise, you make sure that elections... Uh, can never change anything, uh, then the oligarchy is extremely happy to embrace democracy as long as democracy uh, does not produce any results that it doesn't like. Mm-hmm. In our case, in 2015, we were elected. Uh, using the instruments of elections that had been serving the oligarchy for so many years, suddenly the oligarchy turned against democracy. I mean, I had Wolfgang Schäuble, the the finance minister of Germany. This is why I really like this man, because he's one of the few representatives of the establishment who speaks the truth. When I went to the first Eurogroup, the gathering of finance ministers of the Eurozone, um, he he made a a splendid comment at some point, um, openly. He said, uh, elections cannot be allowed to change the economic policy of Greece. (laughs)
0: Wow.
1: So you see, uh, and by the way, allow me to make um, a small um, parenthesis here by taking you to to ancient Athens where democracy was um, first practiced in a very circumscribed way but nevertheless that's where the idea came from. You know, let me tell you something about that weird place, ancient Athens. There were two main adversaries, the aristocrats who were against democracy, and the Democrats, who were in favor of effectively, as Aristotle um, defined it, a system in which the poor govern. Because by definition, the poor are the majority. That was his definition of democracy. Uh, and, And the interesting thing is that the Democrats were against elections. Because they consider elections to be an instrument of the oligarchy, they consider elections to be a system that always privileges the, the better uh, those who are the better orators, the ones who mastered the art of rhetoric, and therefore the ones who had better education. Who were the, those? The rich. And uh, what they preferred as a system of governance uh, was lotteries. <laughs> jury selection comes from there. That's the history of jury selection. So there, every single office except that of general and banker or treasurer uh, was selected through sortition through lotteries, and it, lotteries. The, and it was the aristocrats who wanted elections because they, they, they could win those
0: we can't just rely on sheer chance <laughs> that bloody thing it could go anywhere well you do democracy. when it comes to
1: jury to the jury system yes you're it? quite right, right? no
0: but this is precisely what so I'm clearly
1: saying. what we need is a combination of the two but going back to the reason why i suspect look, correct me if i'm wrong you voted today is because there is an almighty tussle for the first time in British politics since at least the 1960s. There is a real contest now because Jeremy Corbyn has stirred the pot. Uh, And look, as you said, we don't know what the result is. We're speaking before we have even the slightest clue as to what the outcome might be. Uh, But even if Theresa May gets in undeservedly, the fact that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and this particular Labour Party manifesto, which was condemned, remember when it was first leaked, and it was leaked for that purpose by the Blairites. Uh, it was condemned as, you know, one of the longest suicide notes in history. The fact that it has not, Uh, disadvantaged the Labour Party. Indeed, it has created a great wave of optimism as a result of having revisited uh, realms of politics that uh, had been neglected for so many decades, even by the Labour Party. That is a major success. We can build on this. Uh, Jeremy has not been crushed by the establishment, by the media. I think that we can build on the result tonight, whatever it is.
0: Hey, you Yanis, you know the score, huh? So from the things you 've learned from from, uh, that, from your dalliance with power, you feel that it is possible to exert like that 's the Aristotle quote there of like governance by the poor, poor, the democracy should be governance by the poor. It seems to me that you suspect that from what you 've learned and what you 've experienced, that further disruption could be elicited, caused. What do we have to do well.
1: <laughs> I think two words again, constructive disobedience. I think the you know, this is what I genuinely believe in, that uh, progressive politics should be all about this combination of putting forward constructive, moderate, sensible, humanist proposals of things that can happen tomorrow morning, not, not of things that will happen in 200 years, you know, in, going to have to cross yeah. a few things out. <laughs> about yeah, about but space let's be stations. Stations. Let's. There is so much we can do tomorrow morning, Russell. So much we can do tomorrow morning, differently to what we're doing it. Now we put forward these very moderate proposals about things that could, ha- could happen tomorrow, with, of course, with, at the back of our minds an agenda of what could happen in two years' time, in twenty years' time, and then when the establishment uh, junks all our constructive proposals, then we go all out. In the direction of disobedience, uh, civil disobedience, but you know, what I tried to practice, that's why I was not very particularly liked by the establishment, governmental disobedience. Our government was uh, elected in 2015 in order to disobey the edicts and the directives of the deep establishment, and we did for six months together, we did, and it was quite magnificent. <laughs> Was it? It what? was. Actually, I had right-wingers walking up to me on the streets of Athens saying, you know, I didn't vote for you. I don't particularly like what your policies. But, you know, the way you have been disobeying silly directives from Brussels and from Frankfurt and Berlin and so on and so forth, you have my support. It was, it was a remarkable time.
0: There's been a few times where you've touched upon, like, you know, like, so I, I really got that. There's, I mean, just reiterating this so that it stays in my brain more than anything else. Reasonable human proposals that could be achieved tomorrow morning. And then, when inevitably those proposals are junked, that's impossible. It can't be done. It'll be chaos. It'll be mayhem. Then you go, well, we're we'll not cooperating until we get that's it. That's right. I love this scheme. Right. Now, the next thing is that. You're an atheist, aren't you? Absolutely. So, like, how come all the time you keep everything you say seems to be a reference to the sort of human spirit? The th- not everything you say, but like the, the purpose, the connection between people, justice. From where do you derive these values? Pure faith. That's the most religious thing there is. Uh,
1: uh, indeed. Faith is important in life because, uh, let's face it, we cannot prove even our existence scientifically. Uh, and therefore, there always has to be... Look, take geometry. Every geometry requires some faith in order to build upon. When we say that, okay, I, you take Euclid. He created a whole geometry out of some assumptions. So two parallel lines never meet. Well, did he know that? No, he had no clue. He had to say, assume that that is the case. That's faith. Mm-hmm. So you need to faith. Every system of beliefs is based on faith. And then you, on top of the faith, you build the, your logic and your arguments. Uh, and my faith is in in, in, in uh, the remarkable capacity of human beings to produce good.
0: The remarkable capacity. One of, of
1: the things, things we've produced is God. Yeah. That's why I'm an atheist. I believe we created him or her and not vice versa.
0: I mean, I understand the idea of like sort of idolatry and monotheism. And other faith systems clearly being sort of post-linguistic systems of design. But consciousness Oh my God, itself- have you been taking a course at SOAS or something? <laughs> <laughs> I think I just made up that idea, post-linguistic <laughs> systems of design. Let's write that down. That's the first thing I've ever said myself that I've felt the, co- the need to write down. But like, but consciousness itself and this notion of faith, from what is it fueled? Because when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, human ideas and then the willingness to be disruptive and disobedient, this is going to have to be resourced from something. We've touched upon this idea of alienation, like within uh, Marxism, the thing that I understood, you know, rather than the sort of dense and, uh, for me, impenetrable economics, and I'm, so I'm glad there's an economics minister in the room, is that alienation is a spiritual thing, that you feel that your life has no purpose, that your life has no meaning, that you're a cog in a machine and not even a very good cog, and that there's no point in being alive. And you see it everywhere. You look out the window here in Leicester Square, you will see people's ashen faces, tourists looking at pointless distractions, people working at jobs that they don't enjoy for less money than they should be getting, for more hours than is necessary to keep up a system that's a distraction, a pointless, futile there i say it godless system and for, for me the idea that there are that there is something worth pursuing that there is something worth having faith in that the parallel lines will not meet is the belief that humanity that these values come from some that come come from somewhere i don't you know want to get into cause causality creationism or any of those things but the just the simple beauty of a human being, the simple beauty of society, that there is something worth saving, that we are not simply a mechanical model uh, governed by entropy, slowly falling uh, apart. Absolutely.
1: If I thought that we are just, a, uh, uh, you know, a kind of mechanism, a kind of automaton um, ruled by uh, some, um, some software or algorithm over which we have no control, uh, I would just kill myself now. Mm. Just, just end it. So There's no doubt about that, but 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 we you know maybe our difference is this. Look, look at any authoritarian system, whether it's slavery, um, feudalism, capitalism, patriarchy, whatever. No authoritarian system can reproduce itself and survive on the basis of pure violence. <laughs> right? So the, the, the powerful, the the, those who are in, in, in control, in authority, so the, the feudal lord in feudalism, the, the leader of uh, some tribe um, during uh, you know the African eons of uh, domestic uh, slavery uh, mm-hmm. before the Europeans came along. Capitalism today, the uh, there aren't enough policemen and women and enough instruments of uh, of violence by the capitalist state to keep millions of people under control. What keeps authoritarian systems reproducing themselves is the fact that the ideology of the authoritarian system is reproduced and legitimized in the minds of the oppressed. Uh, That's alienation. And usually, Russell, I must must say, one of the instruments by which the oppressed are convinced that their oppression is a good thing is religion, and in particular organized religion. The pope, the patriarch, the priest was always on the right-hand side of the despot, of the the king, of uh, the prime minister, always legitimizing the illegitimate exercise of authority. So religion cuts both ways. Usually it has been uh, uh, an instrument of authority and an instrument of violence against th- those that were oppressed
0: for me then it loses the right to be termed religion and becomes politics with a cape on you know like politics in a nice hat because it's about power for, for me religion is about like you know like if you from my limited knowledge of uh, anthropology and the origins of religion that m- most of these uh, monotheistic larger cults replaced smaller shamanic cults where people had integral relationships to the environments in which they lived whether it was uh, sort of plant-based cultures or hunting cultures religion the impetus for religion is the need to have a connection with the system that governs us the natural systems and the social systems now as you have just said Giannis that a religion as we see it has been a component of oppression because people require it and of rebellion against oppression yes but to, to maintain an ideological system in the mind of the oppressed, one needs a good story, and what better story than an, an almighty oligarch yes. in the sky? Now, do, 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 do who, who
1: who is legitimising the king on earth?
0: Yes, yes, the the crown yes. is directly connected to the sky monarch. Yeah. So, like, so, but do you not think that the antidote to this problem is is going to have like you know the in in the wound is the salve? You know, that the salvation will come from this notion that to, that we require a narrative, a story. See look what's happened in your deal with Tsaritsa. Like, you know, presumably mm. the power corrupted someone that you really needed to be reliable, <laughs> fucks you over. And then and then, and then then the story went boring. That's a, that's a succinct way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then the story went all boring and everyone looked away. So, like, we need to sort of, like, challenge, I think sort of, like, you know, I met a, a really brilliant radio uh, DJ on the. Way in here, the guy mm-hmm. called James O'Brien. He's like one of the top guys in this country. He hassles politicians all the time. He's super clever and super cool. I goes, "What shall I ask, you on this? And he says, "Why do we only see things within the framework of free market Keynesian economics? Why can't we look beyond this framework?" And good that, point. Yeah, it's a bloody good point, isn't it? And that's one of the things we'd like. Well, to all answer. my life, even as an academic economist,
1: I was always trying to, to, you know, to put the psyche and the social back into economics. And the, politi- the, the, the political, because the moment you remove that um, remarkable capacity of the human spirit for indeterminacy and for overcoming, for transcending, uh, you, the moment you remove this from economics, you end up with really bad economics and with terrible politics and ethics.
0: You need to have what you're saying, that you need to have room for the transcendent. Yes, you absolutely. To, how, how, will, how does that work? Talk. Well...
1: Very simply, by by hitting the wall of the limitations of our analytical reasoning, hmm. the, the, the 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 difference between physics and social theory is that in physics there is so much we don't know, and the more we understand, the more we re- realize the vastness of what we don't know. But nevertheless, there is progress, and there is progress through constant experimentation and deduction. In social theory, there is none of that. Uh, We are not, as economists, our economists today are much dumber than the economists of the 1960s, and certainly not as smart as Adam Smith or Karl Marx were, you know, centuries ago. Now, so why is there no progress there? And the the, the, the answer is that economics and social science, social theory is not a science. It, it is, uh, you know, you may not like my, my parallel, but I call it religion with equations, organized religion with equations, uh, superstition. Uh, and superstition? And the, well, only, like the, way, is like and the only way to become free of superstition is through overcoming. Uh, but you need to study it. So, you know, I believe in studying mythology, for instance. The only way to understand the ancient cultures is studying mythology, not believing in it, studying it. And the same way that I love to, to read the Bible and the Quran and so on and so forth, I, I, I believe in theology as an atheist. I think that we, there is so much to understand. But only through reading it, engaging in, with it, and overcoming it. And this is my approach to economics, and I've, I've always pissed off my my academic colleagues as other economists who actually believe that it's real genuine science what they're doing. My attitude was, was always it's all hocus pocus stuff. Uh, But it is absolutely essential to know why it is hocus pocus stuff. There is nothing less impressive than uh, um, uh, criticism which is not based on the knowledge of what you are criticizing. I know. I keep doing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my main ideas: is criticizing things I don't understand. So, right, economics is a bit like meteorology. It's just an an unknowable congregation of even meteorology meteorology is science.
1: Look, look, Grasso.
0: It's superstition.
1: Rasa, think about it. The weather doesn't give a damn about what you think about it.
0: No, it's going to rain, it's going to be sunny.
1: Exactly. So our mathematical models of the weather can be judged by objective reality. So if, if I'm a meteorologist and I come up with a prediction that tomorrow to, there's going to be, you know, a heat wave in, in Leicester Square here, uh-huh. right? All we have to do is to wait until tomorrow to see if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> and the weather is going to either confirm or, you know, just junk my theories about it. But in society, Let's say that I, I had the, the same kind of computer model and the actual machine and data mining that the meteorologist does. But instead of using it to predict the weather, I use it to predict the stock exchange. And suppose that I was somebody very highly respected as a predictor of stock exchange changes. And let's say, imagine that tomorrow, I, uh, t- actually today, I were to predict that tomorrow there's going to be a major crash in the stock exchange. There might be. There might be because I predicted it.
0: Oh right, you predict Oh my See? god you can affect it. Be- we can't affect weather.
1: Well exactly. So in we? society and the, in the in the economy, our beliefs about the phenomenon under study are part of the phenomenon under study. So it's like a cat oh, chasing god. its own tail. Yeah. This yeah. is why we analytical reason is important. But it has severe limitations. I get it now. And it's only action, human action, and humanist action that can uh, cut that Gordian knot.
0: I understand. I, what was that word? Gordian knot.
1: Yes, the Gordian knot. That Remember means the Gordian it's connected knot? Connected. It's a knot that was so very, very difficult to, uh, to disentangle, that anyone who disentangled it would become the king of Greece. And it was Alexander the Great that disentangled it simply by taking his sword and cutting through it.
0: Pra- very pragmatic man <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> that's not afraid to use a sword when necessary. Well, you see,
1: this praxis, action, is what we need. Hmm.
0: So, okay, so economics, it's uh, like, to engage in discourse, one must, like Picasso, understand the form before de- deconstructing the form, before exposing it as a myth, R- rather than a science, it's a belief system. The free market is a kind of god, a kind of deity, in whose belief we are invited to engage because it serves the powerful. It, like, in your mind, like other deities, is a deity constructed by man in order to p- impose power.
1: This is- Exactly. Um, let, me, let me now put it in my words. No. Um, in exactly the same way that Protestantism was essential for commercial society to emerge yeah. and at some point emerged and dominated in the parts of the world where capitalism ruled. Yeah? Yeah. Um, after uh, that, that stage, um, capitalism, as it moved from one phase to another, demanded different economic theories to legitimize it. Um, initially, it was free market uh, thinking. Then it was Keynesianism. Keynesian was it was essential to the overcoming of the, great, of the Great Depression. Then it ran out of steam, and monetarism and Hayek came along, and became like became fashionable. And then they they were sidestepped, sidelined because some you know, capitalism had new de- needs. It is about time, however, that the poor again um, begin to. Set the agenda, not just the interest of capital accumulation.
0: I love this. Do we have to then lead with economics? How come the terms of the discourse, the terms of the debate, are still being established and determined by the powerful? Because it's still, as you have said, the economic arguments need to un- be understood. You need to understand the signs, the symbols, and the way that they connect prior to engaging in the argument. Isn't part of the problem the fact, that you know, the, the, to take the, the the earlier reference to alienation from Marxism, that we don't primarily engage with people on a you know in inverted commas, spiritual level, on the level of what it feels like to be a human being in the world. Isn't this our point of engagement? Shouldn't a new myth, a new story, if it is indeed to engage people, if it is indeed to uh, cause international change, significant change to empower the poor, doesn't it necessarily need to reach beyond the framework of economics and into people's hearts?
1: Yes, but we need to be smart about it. Because the the process that you seem to disdain and I disdain, that has effectively economized, economicized the world, uh, has effectively depleted us of every other value except price, and we ended up like you know what Oscar Wilde's definition of cynicism: someone who knows the the price of everything and the uh, and the value of nothing. What underlines this is the process of commodification, the fact that everything turned into. A commodity. Now we are commodifying, we have commodified uh, women's wombs in the f- context of surrogacy, we are commodifying genetics, uh, we are. Pay- Patenting life. Uh, n- next, if they can, they will commodify space. Mm-hmm. Uh, this process of commodification, the substitution of, uh, of 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 use values, of values that are u- of use to sentient human beings, by uh, exchange values, is a very very clear process. We need to understand that process, and we need to debunk it, and we need to reverse it so we decommodify think about our universities here in this country I mean I don't teach in this country anymore but one of the reasons why I wouldn't teach in, in a university in this country is because you know higher education has been commodified to such an extent that it's not fun anymore it's 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 not even worth uh, it, uh, valuable right. uh, as education because it has been completely and utterly commodified uh, this process of commodification must end how must are you going reversed. into this
0: process of commodification if you believe that everything is de- derived from material if there is no other if there is no crucible from which consciousness emerges if there is no story that leads us to the human soul how then if we live in materialism and uh, commodification is a natural result of materialism if all that there is is that which could be mechanically demonstrated then materialism and commodification are the natural conclusion to that individualism is another natural conclusion because we are just individuals we're here to we're going to die and after that there's nothing and all that matters is that how much we can consume how will we re how can you break the spell of commodification consumerism and individualism if you don't expose its fallacy that we are not commodities we're not commodities to one another that there is a bigger sh- exchange taking place when human beings look into one one another's eyes how how can you from an atheistic perspective break that spell very simple (laughs) fuck off mate
1: (laughs) glad you you decouple material from commodity you know when a child when a child draws a beautiful drawing and gives it to his mother or her mother or friends with a kiss that is not a commodity that is the opposite of a commodity. Now, the drawing, the, 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 the fruit that he or she has collected as a gift is material. The, I have absolutely no doubt that my spirit is infinitely and qualitatively different to common matter. The fact that I believe that matter can reach a stage of development that it begets something that we experience as spirit... Uh, is no reason for identifying material with commodity, materialism with commodification, uh, where we can. Ag- but you know what? It really doesn't matter in the end, because whether I'm right or wrong about the material basis of the spirit, what matters is that we have a spirit, and the only thing that uh, is valuable in this life of ours is the spiritual life we live. I so, let, look, we will never settle a, the issue yes, about right. the, so,
0: the, the, the nature I understand, of spirit. I understand. Prioritizing the spirit doesn't need a chronological basis. You don't need to say, well, the spirit clearly came first in order to agree that the spirit is of the utmost importance. Absolutely. And you know what, Rasta, this is why
1: I deplore what I call the theist atheists. Uh, I'm not going to mention names. You know who, my, who I'm talking about here, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are actually scornful. Of believers of of non atheists uh, I remember I, ha- I was having um, uh, a wonderful discussion with the theologian. Who, I- Somebody who was teaching scripture to, in the school I went to, who was a poet, a fantastic man. And I was, you know, a 12 year old uh, radical atheist. And I said to him, but like all 12 year olds. Sh- yeah. For, su- surely you don't believe that, you know, Jesus did this and did the other. And then he, uh, you know, after he was crucified, then he ascended into the heavens. Surely you don't believe all that. If we had the time machine and we went back there, do you believe you would see that if you were there? And he said something that uh, is still with me. He said, you know what? maybe you're right. Maybe if we had a time machine and went back to you know, uh, Jerusalem uh, at the time when Jesus was being crucified, we wouldn't see any of the, th- the stuff that we talk about in, uh, in, in our scripture classes. But it doesn't really matter. It's a story for me that makes me a better person and allows me to experience the human condition in a far better way. Uh, and at that moment, I thought, right, this guy and I have nothing to divide us. Um, I do believe in stories. I, I do believe that the only way of making sense of our existence is through the transcendence that um, can unite us independently of whether factually we believe that um, you know spirit comes from matter or vice versa. What really matters in the end is to end, I'm going back to the topic that we were discussing earlier, alienation. Alienation is what kills the human spirit and that is the number
0: one enemy. Yes, because it denies the connection between human beings and it prioritizes this uh, the idea of our individual lives. It disconnects us, it denies us a purpose. I see that documentary about James Baldwin, "I am not your Negro." there's mm-hmm. like obviously there's enough in r- American racial politics to fill a, 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 a thousand documentaries. There was this bit, though, Yanis, where he said. The private lives, he said, of um, the average American and uh, over archived footage of white Americans in a supermarket, he said there is a massive disjunct between the private life of the average American and the public life. He suggested to me a kind of seclusion, a disconnection, a loss of meaning and a loss of purpose, which can can be provided by these types of stories and like your teacher when you were 12 and me 30 years down the line, I, I'm inclined to agree that it's, there is nothing to separate us when we're talking about the chicken-egg chronology of matter and spirit because the important thing is that there is such a thing as purpose, there is such a thing as connection and if these things aren't inserted into the way that people, the systems are organised, we're fucked. So, yes, indeed, indeed. So, like, and uh, can like, may I add
1: uh, a, a comment here? Yeah, this concept of the individual is a highly problematic one. Go on, and it's got to do with the Scottish Enlightenment. You know, you've got to, you've got to blame the Scots for this. Good about time, <laughs> <laughs> and in particular, you know, people like David Hume uh, and Adam Smith. Later on, this idea that you can uh, you can define the person independently of the social and have this juxtaposition between the I and the we. That is so alien to me, it's so, so alien to the ancient Greek culture. Uh, it, 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 politics comes from the word polis, the, 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 the notion of an urban conurb- conurbation of a city, of a neighborhood. And you know, uh, the ancient Greeks used to define the idiot as a person that was not engaged in politics. Idiot means idiotis, means privateer the person who is private, an individual, an atom, is the idiot. Uh, You can't take him seriously because the only way of becoming sophisticated and becoming smart and becoming human is by reflecting into other people's eyes. So this idea that uh, we're all Robinson cruisers who happen to trade with one another across the seas and that this is the notion of society, that's Thatcher's idea of society. Well, it's no wonder that at some point Thatcher herself said there is no such thing as society, uh, so we, we, we unless we conceptualize ourselves dialectically that is as a, an interaction with one another and find it imp- we have to find it impossible to conceptualize our, ourselves separately, then we simply have no concept of of what we are as human beings of what our capacities are, our uh, weaknesses, and so on so on and so forth
0: you're right, honest because there is no individual without relationship. Denied relationship, in uh, locked into a capsule floating in space, taking once again your adolescent exactly. time machine and envisaging a human being never reflected in another's eyes. What kind of humanity is that? But the narrative of the individual is a useful tool for in the service of this continued alienation because millions mm. and millions of individuals are castrated and easy mm-hmm. opponents for the powerful. Mm-hmm. Divide and rule. Yes. So, uh, I, I mean, I don't know why this thing's been in my head for so long, but it, the, the the correlation between commodification, materialism, and individualism for me it seems like a sort of a, a, a Satan's trident with which pinions us to a permanent state of subjugation that until we can somehow understand with a new metaphor that this idea of society that doesn't feel sort of dried out like the sort of potpourri of socialism, it's seductive aroma long gone we need to smell fresh blooms, a new <laughs> flora, a new myth, a story that is engaging and isn't it likely Yanis, that we have to challenge a lot? with the free market Keynesian economics which we, I think you had a good go at that earlier I think we've, that sacred cow has been kicked right up the arse don't we have to look at ideas such as national sovereignty statehood international politics and kind of a new kind of confederacy having been in a position of a, like you know considerable power the economic minister you're right the economic minister of Greece up against the, the potency of the machine right there at the heart of it do you think that he, with the the configuration the an international configuration that we currently have that democracy can provide change because it would seem to me like looking from the outside with my peripatetic and now I now now know literal idiocy that it seemed to me like what happened was is uh, I've always thought uh, democracy can't change anything because like because of what your man the German guy said you know and like. So when Syriza got into power and then got all sort of stamped out like a cigarette by the the, the international politics, it made me think, oh, right, you can't actually change anything without some kind of new global ideology. Of course.
1: Well, I'm an internationalist, mate. And I spent all my days and nights over the last two years, actually, since I resigned, uh, working with... um, tens of thousands of other utopians around Europe, creating what we call the Democracy in Europe Movement, Diem, as in Carpe Diem. Uh, Because, you know, and, and it gives me enormous pleasure doing this, Russell. People say to me, what have you been doing since you left government? Well... I I remember Tony Benn once said that when he retired from parliament that he's leaving parliament to concentrate on politics. Well, I left government to concentrate on politics, and it is at the transnational, pan-European level. We have members in Germany, in Lithuania, here in Britain, everywhere. And uh, what we're trying to do, uh, effectively, is what you were talking about. If you're going to challenge the process of commodification, if you're going to challenge the right of the bourgeoisie to... um, Uh, effectively condemn whole generations of the majority of people to the scrap heap of history so as as to um, reproduce their own very miserable sad existence as oligarchs. If you're going to oppose the nation state... That was created um, in the 18th and 19th century to propagate capital accumulation. If you're going to oppose the treatment of refugees and the electrified fences that are now being created by the nation states, especially now with Brexit and so on, keep being gi- given another, uh, a new lease of life. If you're going to do all that, you've got to to, to, to to, at the very same time, contest the concept of borders and of separation of our different peoples. So, At Diem, what we're trying to do is we're trying to be seriously disrespectful of all these divisions that begin with a division between uh, me and you, as the individual and the I and the we, uh, the division which is based on class, and of course, the division which is based on ethnicity and so-called national identity.
0: That's going to be tough, you know, because uh, people really like their flags, I've noticed. People like their flags and their national identity. Now, You know be... what? We can tolerate that and we're not going to encourage it. I love my, my, the Greek flag,
1: even though it's... By the way, do you know that it is the, the Greek flag is the flag of Bavaria? Don't tell anyone this. Just keep this between us. You <laughs> can't even have um, bloody flag. All flags um, are, are at the same time a bit silly mm-hmm. and wonderful. You know, I mean, look, think about football, you know. Yeah, you, I love a World you, Cup. You can love your, your team, you can love its flag, its colours, you know, the jersey. Um, it gives you, it's a bit like theatre, It's a, you know, suspend disbelief for a bit yes, and you yes, have a great yes. deal of fun. Let's do this with our nations.
0: Recognise that the pageantry is a metaphor, recognise that it yes. is a festival, recognise that it is I love my country,
1: symbol. I'm a patriot. But I hate nationalism, because nationalism is just toxic, a t- toxic variety of patriotism. A patriot loves his country. A nationalist thinks his country has the right to fuck over all the other countries.
0: The thing is, Yannis. There's is a big it, difference, you know. Yeah, I get it, mate. It was good. Now, look, Jan, it's very difficult to convey complex ideas to people, isn't it?
1: Nope. <laughs> it's very difficult to do it when you're confused yourself. So the, the, this, the, our task is first to clarify our own thoughts and then convey them. Oh, right. And it's very, very difficult to, to, to convey difficult ideas to people when uh, um, you're only doing it in order to propagate and reproduce your salary, yeah. like most politicians do. So
0: what about, what about personal ideas of honour and sacrifice? Because where I get into trouble is I feel that I... Um, serve twin humours, that within me there is altruism and love and a great desire to bring about change, but also there is deep infatuation with self, ego, power. What do we do? How does a man cope with the seduction of power? How does a, a man or woman or human being stay true to a value system in opposition to the internal enemies? Forget the enemies without, forget the corruption in the world, but the corruption within. You need,
1: you need uh, techniques to do this, I believe. I had a technique um, uh, about a week before the general election, where I won my seat and then moved on to, into government. I was visited by... Um, a Spanish journalist who came along with an interpreter. It's a long story, but the short version of it is that the interpreter turned out to be a homeless person, a homeless Greek, who at at the end of this interview uh, talked to me briefly and he explained to me his circumstances. He had lost his house, his family, his job, everything. And he said to me, look, I don't want you to do anything for me because people like me are finished. But um, please do something about the ones who are still clinging on, who have not fallen into the black hole like I have. And I remember when I was in Brussels, when I was in Frankfurt, I was talking to the German finance minister. I kept when I felt that I was losing my own backbone, or I was losing my own uh, resolve. I would bring this guy, this homeless person, back to my to my mind, and I would use him as a as a means of reinvigorating my resolve. We need to have these uh, techniques within us. But more generally, I remember, <laughs> um, uh, d- d- have you ever s- watched uh, Ken Loach's uh, uh, Land Freedom? His, his movie. His movie of, yeah, I remember this, this, this woman in there, an anarchist, a Spanish anarchist, uh, Catalan anarchist, um, who was uh, waving this black and red flag of the anarchists. Uh, and uh, the, 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 there was a Stalinist communist that was admonishing her for you know being having a black black in the flag, not just black, a red flag and she said, "Well, we need to keep the black in there to remind us of the darkness within our own soul and I, I think this is very important. We need to keep reminded ourselves." Uh, of, uh, you know, the the little Nazi in
0: us
1: (laughs) that needs to be constantly kept in check.
0: He's a right little bastard, isn't he? He There will never be enough power. (laughs) There will never be enough pleasure. There will never be enough fruits of seduction for that little Nazi, the little Nazi that abides continually within. Hmm. Okay, so you have self-constructed deities from your personal mythos that you pay inner honor to e.g. the homeless interpreter which is, seems a bit of an odd way to, for him to have come into your life, may I say, incidentally so you keep him, you hold him as an avatar in your consciousness to remind you of duty to remind you of suffering, because perhaps these forces, these energies these humans, are more powerful than ego, but were you, when you were in the position of proper power and it went all corrupt and dodgy and it sounds like the leader dude screwed you Wait, did you not, did your ego not respond? Did you not want to think, oh, I'm going to fucking do that guy?
1: No, no, not at all. Because you, maybe it helped the fact that I had no power. I had office, oh. but I had no power. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what, Russell, it was astonishing. There were those moments when I could see all these very powerful people, supposedly power- powerful people like Angela Merkel, Christine Lagarde, Mario Draghi, you know, well... George Osborne, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, him. That dude's not fooling anybody, these dudes, right?
1: You know what? They're not powerful.
0: No, they're
1: they're themselves uh, puppets. I can, I even even with somebody like Schäuble, who is the most powerful finance minister possibly in the world, I caught I caught glimpses of his powerlessness. It's a pure tragic situation where the most powerful man I've ever met was simultaneously powerless. And this combination is uh, just, just, just remarkable. Uh, it, it, it turns the, the, all these discussions into the stuff of genuine Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, because you know, think about Macbeth. Is, was Macbeth really powerful? I mean, he was going from one crime to another uh, <laughs> in an existentialist panic over his lack of power and control over his life. This is why we need theater. This is why we need music. Why we need the arts. If you don't have this background, you go into these meetings with all these ministers and prime ministers and chancellors and so on and you wouldn't realize that what is going on is a a game in which they're pawns. And they themselves sometimes, the the, the less banal of them, most of them are banal and just write-offs, but some (laughs) smart ones amongst themselves, amongst these people realize their own condition.
0: Some of them realize that yeah. they are merely some subjugated right. player in a greater drama. Therefore, Yanis, where is the power? Who is the powerful? Is it some abstract system held together by belief, like an, a pound note invested with value? Where is the power? If you've met the world's most powerful people and seen in them their frailty, their mortality, their humanity, their impotence, where is the power?
1: You know why? This is why I'm still a Marxist in my, in my late 50s. Because Marx described so beautifully that epic drama of capitalism where you've got uh, machines that enhance productivity magnificently. Instead of them, those machines becoming our slaves, we become their slaves, and that includes the capitalists who own the machines. And you know, Marx has this remarkable text in which he is uh, poetically explaining the drama of the capitalist, the capitalist who knows how terrible the life of the workers are And he was so desperately keen not to become one of them. (laughs) That is, losing his humanity by squeezing the living daylights out of them in order to make sure that he's not undercut by his competitors and becomes one of them. And in the end... The workers become alienated, working the machines in a Fordist kind of production line, and the capitalists are there to serve the interests of capital accumulation without themselves ever being capable of achieving satisfaction, happiness, joy. So, uh, uh, therefore, Marx's critique of capitalism is not that it is one which is unfair and, you know, unequal. No, it's one where every member of humanity is condemned to a substandard life, including the capitalists.
0: That's a very, again, very sort of spiritual notion that, that no one is benefiting, that the people, even the perpetrators, even those superficially in a position of power, those near the top of the hierarchy are similarly subjugated by the ideology of which they live in service. So it's an idea, almost like, you know, to quote Richard... But think about it, I mean,
1: the, the, take feminism. One of the most significant arguments of feminism is that patriarchy is terrible for men as well. Yes. Even though they are the the, the violators... They're the ones that are ruling over the women, and so on and so forth. In the end, they end up being sad bastards. Yes, yes, yes. Because I suppose, or, a, or b- we, I should say. As, yes, as, as we as are a, both
0: men. We're both men. Man, let's yeah. face it. Um, like, um, so, like the, but this again, uh, I think, refers to this: the idea of individualism, the illusion of individualism. That once you break that idea that you are a separate atomized unit, then no form of, of, of uh, tyranny can be successful for you, whether it's interpersonal, social tyranny. You know, and oh, remember Solomon Berg's song? No,
1: no one is f- is free if one is in chains. Yes, That's the yes. whole idea, isn't it?
0: All these ideas are spiritual. All these ideas, oneness. Like I mean, like every single bloody thing you've said is somewhere in the back of Gita, somewhere in there, somewhere in the great scriptures. Well, of course.
1: What what are the great scriptures? They're texts produced by millions of people uh, struggling to find what the you know what the way forward is.
0: Yes. So so. What, Um, I suppose my point is...
1: What I do take out, of course, is God, because I don't believe in God, but I believe in the Scriptures. He's the best bit!
0: (laughs) He. he, she. You mean not she Don't worry about his genitals at <laughs> this point. We're not going to have sex with him anyway.
1: Oh, but you do, don't confuse sex with gender. We are going to be
0: lambasted if we, if we make this mistake. You're quite right. You're quite right. Now, there are two things that are slightly more trite and, and, and trivial uh, to mention. One is that uh, the reason that we pursued having you as a guest, even though we're well aware of you, <laughs> was because uh, someone in a audience at a gig of mine gave me a laminated sort of thing I guess it was to do with DM, that movement yes. of yours, saying you've got to get Yannis on your show, you've got to do it, whoever you are thank you, because in this particular story you play the role of a, the homeless interpreter that <laughs> nomadic, peculiar mythic figure that entered Yannis's life in order to remind him of principles when in the corridors of power, when in the Jacobean drama of potency and impotency, seeing people that robed in domination, that beneath it were nude, powerless, empty, hollow, temporary vessels for an empty notion that serves no one, even those enthroned by it, even those coronated in the apparent glory of this system, sit there nude, shrivel, castrated on the thrones they made with machines by the oppressed. That was one thing, is I wanted to check, give her a bit of a name check, and two... Do you remember that there was a list for the world's cleverest people? And I believe uh, you may have been. Well, you're certainly higher up it than me. You might not be shallow enough to look at lists for the world's cleverest people. But in I didn't know about that list. But there's, <laughs> there's you, Naomi Klein. But I don't believe in lists. So. <laughs> well, I fucking do. Now you, you, I think you might have been number two behind Naomi Klein, and then Thomas Piketty. He was in there as well. I was number four, which is still a Champions League place in the cleverness league. Yeah. And having now met you, I feel. Um, much more fortunate to have been even in in, in, in that kind of proximity. Uh, uh, this conversation so far has given me a great deal of hope. It's given me like a, what I suppose, you know, the, for me, I'm shamelessly undertaking a personal journey. I know that what I'm dealing with is is probably more well, so... Well, we like, all are, uh, aren't are we? we?
1: Of course. But the, the, the whole point is that the personal is not atomistic. Uh, he, he, otherwise, it's bloody lonely and pointless.
0: And there is no point. There is no point. It's you pointless. might as well take drugs. Yeah. You might as well sit in a room on smack if there if if there is no. Interview. You might as well be in the Matrix. <laughs> you might as well be in the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, and that was incredible. And it, uh, evidently, you know uh, too much to fit into a single conversation. Like, so, but, uh, you know, or perhaps even a lifetime of conversations. I probably would like to know more about you on a personal level. Will you come back what? and do what I can ask you right now? Yes, met, please like, go ahead. What's your relationship like with your wife?
1: Fantastic.
0: Is it, uh, and you know a-
1: what, I'm so glad that, because before I got into politics, into, into government, I should say, uh, I was ever so worried that it would uh, have a negative impact on, on our relationship. Oh. Because we, we, we lived such a good life, you know. She's an artist. She's an artist. I worked with her on her art projects. Uh, you know, she's, she's the artist. I was a bullshit artist. Uh, it was fantastic. And then suddenly <laughs> the idea of going into government and, you know, disappearing for weeks on end in meetings, uh, Cat me seriously, but in the end, because we found ourselves in such in the eye of the storm, and we were attacked so savagely by the media, you know, there is a national treason charge against me oh, you're in the Greek parliament, yeah, I, I wear track. it as a badge of honour, but nevertheless
0: treason. we didn't know that before you came in here
1: <laughs> arrest <laughs> that man <laughs> um, so uh, it, it, it brought us much closer what together what was the treason you did? oh, uh,
0: I undermined Greece's position in the European Union oh, you're not going to do that <laughs> So that's the <laughs> European Union, which we are so beloved of. Mm. So it was a challenge to your personal, was it a challenge to your personal life or it actually brought you together? Because I must only think when you, well, I mean, you are a poli- being a politician, I don't know where you see yourself now.
1: Um, I'm a political animal. All right. Unashamedly.
0: All right, I like it. So, like, um, always have been, mind you. So. <laughs> I wonder what it is I'm doing. i some sort of um, uh, shaman on the periphery of the global village, is where I sort of like to see myself. I want to deal with different realms with the transcendent. When I find myself sort of blocked into t- sort of um, a hegemonic. Well, syntax. I can
1: tell you one thing, which we probably don't know, that our children, uh, in particular, my wife's children, uh, are. I think they owe their politicization to you.
0: Oh yes, about time a compliment. There oh, you are. Tell me about it. <laughs> oh, you, you
1: know, my my shares now have really gone up in my own household, as it is out of this podcast. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> I can
0: hold on. The ego is growing. I feel it inflating. <laughs> the Nazi within. He's seeking. He's in a there's a Nuremberg in my soul, and everyone's invited. There are some ethnic groups that are not invited to the Nuremberg in my soul. It's quite exclusive, actually. It's only white blonde people. I'm not even allowed and it's quite difficult really um okay hold on a minute so because don't you sometimes think when like when you're watching like hillary clinton or donald trump or like less less jeremy corbyn actually because i know he's got that allotment and he's so devoted and so dedicated but like don't you think sometimes when you look at Theresa may having something sort of why are you doing this what's wrong what's happened to you You look sort of like what is holding you together
1: i can't even bring myself. To have this query in my soul,
0: <laughs> you won't I then. just
1: look at Theresa May, and I just don't even have this kind of curiosity about her. What? Other Tory politicians, I would. I mean, Thatcher was a fascinating person. Mm. Theresa May is bland. Right. She is the banality of evil. Oh, I love the banality. Well, food. you know, Thatcher was evil. But she was smart. I mean, she was a worthy opponent. Theresa May okay. is not a worthy opponent. A, f-
0: a, a friend of mine who's a poet said that he was uh, like invited for some sort of educational project to write poems to decry Margaret Thatcher. He said he started to watch YouTube videos of her. It's my mate, Gee. She was magnificent. And he was like, he, he can't criticise her because she's if fantastic. Only, <laughs> if only she was on our
1: side of politics. Because she's, and not on the wrong side of politics. Imagine if we had somebody like that on yeah, our what, side what, of politics.
0: What is it? Was it? Charisma? What yeah, is it? She,
1: she was a powerful
0: woman. What is this power? What is this? Well,
1: you you can't define it. If you try to define, it, it's like beauty. You lose it. Uh, mm. You recognize, like pornography as well. You, you recognize when you see it. You can't define
0: it. You recognize it when you see it. Yeah, certainly pornography. I've put the hours. I mean, into my technology. my mum was
1: a bit like that. She was a local government politician, and you could see it was oozing out of her. Her, her energy, her, uh, her political skills. She she was unbelievable, and she was not trained at all in doing it. She just had it. Uh, on the other hand you know people are my, like my dad more bookish more mild couldn't do politics to save his life even though he spent four years in the concentration camp but nevertheless
0: See, oh bloody hell did he fucking hell yeah Jeez, there's all sorts of heaviness going on this interview doesn't <laughs> I feel, I feel like i am not covered enough oh god dad in concentration camp mum in local government where's my research um Giannis, there's another thing. Oh, yeah. So, like, with this ongoing struggle, which you have now uh, said is an international struggle, what do you identify as the Medusa's head? What is it? Where do you interface? Once you recognise that the the, the, uh, arena in which this battle is being fought is international, who is the monster? I think the monster is is a false
1: opposition. There's a false opposition going on today between the deep establishment... The ones who are simply trying to recreate the existing and reproduce the existing forms of power.
0: Where are these deep establishment? by the oh, way? Oh,
1: the, the City of London, Wall Street, Frankfurt, uh, the uh, large corporations that are destroying the planet. Uh, and you the, call
0: them deep establishment because their power is so entrenched yeah, you that can they actually, cannot you be know, penetrated you, you by you superficial... Can,
1: you know who they are. You, we even have names and addresses. We, these are clearly identified people, who do not operate, there's no conspiracy, uh, it's just that the, they are part of a network, uh, each one of them is trying to do what is best for them, but together, it's a conspiracy without conspirators, this, th- 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 this establishment, and they, it's like an organism that has uh, de facto a, a, a manner for reproducing itself. Uh, and it's like a, a huge squid on the face of humanity, a bit like Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is part of that establishment. Now, so that you have this. Yeah, and this was severely defeated as I, as I, in the Brexit referendum. It, it was defeated with Donald Trump's uh, election, even though he's very quickly embedding himself in this establishment, too. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he, he got elected ag- against the, the will of the establishment. So on the one hand, you've got this deep establishment. And on the other hand, you have what I call the nationalist international, a uh, postmodern version of the 1920s and 30s fascists. The populists from the right wing, xenophobic, racist, uh, uh, who are seemingly anti-establishment, seemingly against the financial sector, uh, but in the end, their narrative of xenophobia and of returning to the bosom of the nation state and so on, in the end, only serves the bankers and, uh, and the deep establishment. That's why I'm calling it the fo- uh, false opposition. Take France now, or recently, in, with a presidential election. Uh, Emmanuel Macron would never have won if it wasn't for Le Pen, for the neo-fascist opposition. The only reason why he managed to, even I supported him against the fascists, of course I would. Uh, in, uh, in the 1930s. Wouldn't we support anyone against Hitler? Yes, we would. So uh, we did it again, and I don't feel apologetic about that, but it's a fact that the nationalist xenophobic uh, international is necessary for the deep establishment to reproduce itself, and the deep establishment is necessary for the, nationals, the nationalist international to have something to rail against. Mm. This opposition is false, yes. because they are accomplices, they are not foes. We have to be their foes. We must be the progressive international that attacks both of them and dissolves this fake opposition. I
0: like this story. I like this story. They are supporting each other. They are working in tandem and osmosis.
1: Unwittingly as well. It's not that they are in cahoots with one another, but they are symbiotic. Yes, scene yes I
0: understand. I understand. It's like sort of an unconscious drama being played out in the sort of international psyche, without the with, without the knowledge of the participants. Um, how do you? How do we reach beyond the? How do we reach beyond these evidently appealing ideas such as nationalism and help people to understand that their interests are in opposing these? uh these mm, twin evils just for a moment these uh, these accomplices how do we reach beyond it because you know people go yeah fuck the establishment we'll vote for Trump or fuck the establishment brexit how do you go no 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 not that yes fuck the establishment but no think a bit longer you
1: know before the re- the referendum um i was uh, going around england even went ventured to scotland and a little bit to wales and northern ireland uh campaigning against brexit which is very strange uh, it was very strange to many of my audience in my audience because uh, I'm not exactly a lackey of the European Union or a great supporter of the European Union. So why are you saying? To, why are you asking us to stay in the EU that uh, smashed you? Yeah. Was the, the, the and the answer was well. Remember the 19th century folks. Yes. Remember the I beginning remember. of the labor uh, the labor movement. Uh, what was the state then? It was an instrument of oppression. It was an instrument of the landlords and and of the industrialists, but we did not here in Britain have as our objective to smash the state and you know to end uh, you know Britain or England. Uh, Our objective was to be in and against. To get into Parliament to be against this Parliament, to get into government to be against uh, the, the government policies of reproducing wealth and privilege, to get into every single institution and to subvert it from within. That is what I was pro- promoting before the referendum. Yeah. Stay in the EU so that we can fight against this EU, but together. Because by leaving the EU, you're isolating yourselves in this country and you're, be- you're going to become more vulnerable to the British bourgeoisie, to the British ruling class, and in the end your capacity to join forces with us on the other side of the British Channel against the establishment everywhere uh, is diminished.
0: This makes me question earlier uh, your, your earlier point about faith, because <laughs> in a sense it's faith that your individual belief is what's right. Sometimes I feel that we have to have faith that there is, like, what is this feeling, this feeling of connection that there is a beauty in that woman? Who do I have to be? What is that? That's, you know, an emotion for me. Mm -hmm. This cannot be material. This belongs in the realm of the sublime and the divine. This belongs in the realm where physics ends, where their explanations end, where they hit those dead ends, Mm -hmm. you know? And... For me like this this faith deployed correctly is a kind of understanding that we don't know. We don't know what's best. Indeed. But we and like that uh, but, uh, but what I have seen so far in people like you know the whole we will bring it down from within idea that's a m- motherfucker because like, you know, like me like within the media It's not
1: meant to be easy, you know.
0: <laughs> right. Don't complain about that. But like, it, it,
1: speaking about self-confidence, I believe that it is important to be self-confident enough in order to take action. But at the same time, you know, my good friend Brian Eno once said in his joint speech that we gave that democracy is the appropriate regime for people who don't believe that they know what the answers are. If we, we need to have confidence that need, there has to be a change, but at the same time, not so much confidence as to think that each one of us has all the answers. Democracy is all about crowdsourcing solutions. But that requires a capacity to recognize that you, me, individually, we do not have the answers. We have to draw together and bring them all together. But the most important thing is to be able to live in a world where we can actually choose our partners and to to, to be inclusive. The more crowdfunding we do of ideas, the better the chances that we will be able to, to, to confront this, 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 silliness all around us, you know, the, mm. you go to, in, in any dinner party in London and they talk about the rubbish about, you know, their second mortgages and all that crap again after 2008. Now, who wants to live a life like that? But to do the alternative, to bring about a coalition that will change the world, um, You must abandon all optimism because you you can't be optimistic about the world we live in, but embrace hope. And it is important to make the distinction between optimism and hope. And work towards bringing this coalition of democrats around, so that we can crowdsource good answers to you know f- f- for future solutions.
0: So you have to use whatever systems are available to you, while simultaneously acknowledging the fallacy of those systems. It's interesting to hear you say that the EU is a necessity, even having looked right inside it and seen it creaking with human frailty. Because it seems mm-hmm. to me that you you know yes, you can use existing systems, but also the superimposition of novel systems is also an option. You know, like, uh, those people that are a bit more out there, you know, the people that are sort of a bit more, we've taken Ayahuasca, we've had a vision, and this is the way to build society. They sort of, like, say stuff like, just yeah, create... That's, that's scary. You worry about them. Of course. <laughs> well, they, we've got... A, they need a place at the table. They're part of the, they've are sure. part. they got to be part of the solution. Of course. Of course. The mystics, the weirdos, the people yeah. that Kerouac would be into. Well, that, that devout Catholic, drunk genius. <laughs> <laughs> people are so complicated. i like um, Like... What that, I've heard is, like, uh, capitalism has provided the organs for a, a potentially successful system, but uh, it's almost like, in, is it possible to just go, right, we're starting this new thing and see what happens? Almost like mm, a cult. Almost like, we're going to live like this. We're going to have an international mm-hmm. confederacy. That We're going to have a currency. We're going to trade. We're going to do that. You know, what happens? Is that plausible?
1: Goodness, goodness knows. How do we know what's possible? What I do know is what's impossible. The current system we live in cannot be sustainable. It's, we are not only destroying our planet, but this capitalism we live in uh, is, uh, has entered, is already at a very advanced stage of disintegration. We are creating at the very same time technologies that are capable of freeing us up of all chores and all you know, worries about even, even uh, green politics can, can be um, established on the basis of clean technologies now. I mean, there is so much happening at the, le- at the world of technology. The problem is who owns those, te- those technologies uh, and what use are we putting them to? Capitalism is dead. Capitalism hasn't died yet. Uh, remember what Antonio Gramsci once said, that the, the problem we have is that the old has died, but the new has not been born yet. Mm. So we are in this kind of interregnum. And it is, it is pregnant with possibilities. So I don't know the answers to what... I'm sure that there is a variety, a plethora of possibilities. But if we maintain the private ownership of these fantastic ne- technological products of artificial intelligence and so on and so forth, I think that we are going to go to the extreme of the Matrix where we are all slaves of the machines instead of the other extreme where I would like us to go, which is Star Trek, mm. where, you know, there is a hole in the wall and you get everything you want from it, nobody has to work, and we all sit around the
0: table and discuss
1: philosophy and explore the universe.
0: That seems like a good solution. That seems like a beautiful utopia. That seems but like there
1: is the- a lot of variety in between those two extremes. Yes, there
0: is. <laughs> Look at Jenny frantically holding up signs that say we've been speaking for 75 minutes and still barely touched the surface of anything. But yeah, <laughs> but Yanis, I mean, it's been a, a fantastic... It's been a fantastic conversation. I've, I've learned a great deal. I've started to trip out about fifteen minutes ago. I like sort of hit a kind of, <laughs> this kind of, a well, me too, Samadhi me too. of kind of <laughs> limitless potential of the sort of a trans- it induced. It was like an incantation of a kind of mantra of possibility. What I suppose is what it ha- what's been very heartening is that. Uh, one does begin to feel, and God knows what you must have gone through emotionally after what you experienced with Saritza and the, the, and subsequently. But the, the-,
1: Russell, the worst part was the backstabbing by your own comrades. Um, you know, facing the ironclad credos on the other side of the table was fine. This, you know, this is what I went there for. But the infighting between us and having your own comrades. Uh, uh, betray the cause that there's nothing worse than that.
0: So that's because you sort of I suppose you have to recognise that human beings have complex drives and complex needs and Indeed. no matter what they say you don't really know what it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, the ancient tragedians
1: concentrated on treachery, on on what happens within one's own um, group, one's own coalition. This is this this is the the worst source of pain. Yes. I uh, remember Ramsey Macdonald?
0: Yeah, yeah, tell yeah, me about yeah, that again. Yeah.
1: Well, who'd betrayed the Labour Party? It's first Prime Minister.
0: The first Labour <laughs> Prime Minister betrayed the Labour Party. because And on we have lots of Ramsay
1: MacDonalds in the Labour Party today in Britain. And we have them throughout the progressive movements in the world. And this is what we must beware.
0: That's
1: the black in the red flag (laughs) that I mentioned before.
0: The relationship between the internal world and the external world, a person's consciousness, a person's psyche, and these external systems within which we interrelate. And whether or not there is an an objective severance, an, an objective separation between the inner world and the outer world is something that we could limitlessly speculate on. But it does seem to me that individuals, when they interface deeply with these kind of systems that you're defining, are seduced by its darker side that the black in the flag in, does consume the red in the flag.
1: No, I'm I'm going to be optimistic about this. The only thing I'm going to be optimistic about we have a capacity to suppress the the, the darkness, but we have to recognize it.
0: But it's, taken, we, but it's bec- got to take place on an individual level now, Janis.
1: Individual and collective, yeah. uh, dialectical level. That is, I don't make the, the, the. I cannot separate myself from the people that are a constant influence on me.
0: So in a way we have to allow it, it has to be okay that people are flawed. What did you do wrong? Did you make mistakes? Oh,
1: how many more hours do you have? Huh. <laughs> of course I make, I make mistakes all day, every day. Only fanatics don't make mistakes. <laughs> in their own mind.
0: We have to stop. We have to stop, don't we'll, we?
1: We'll do it again at some point. Maybe we can, we can continue in Athens. What? Maybe we can continue this in Athens.
0: I'd like to go to Athens. And when, last time I went there, I was still a drug addict. I got into a fight in a strip club. It was very, very low-frequency behaviour. I'd like to go back to well, let's there. do it
1: differently this time.
0: <laughs> the home of democracy, to bring about a utopia, and to support these incredible, okay, emerging new date. ideas. All right, a date in Athens. All right, that's <laughs> great. You've been listening to Russell Brand, Under the Skin, with a, Oh, no, don't let me fuck up your surname now. Let me do it. Yanis Varoufakis. Very good. Janis Varoufakis. Is, what an honour, and what an education. Thanks. Come the back. The honour is gonna, all mine, Russell. Next time is Athens. God, you charming great. bastard. Uh, <laughs> this thing's sponsored by my tour, russellbrand.com, if you want to come and see me on tour. Give us a review on itunes or don't it's in the general context of things it seems like it might not be that meaningful (laughs) thank (laughs) you